This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. A degree from a four years college is worth more today than ever before. Yet many parents, pundits, and political leaders are wondering whether the high costs of further education are worth the investment. Students are demanding free tuition. College alumni are asking for a forgiveness of their college debts. And parents are pondering whether to suggest a two-year program or maybe heading straight into the workforce to their high school graduates. So are colleges losing their elan? Are they squandering their privileged status in the U.S. educational system? Are they failing to adapt to the economic realities of the 21st century? To probe these questions, I have with me on the Education Exchange today Jacob Light, an economist who's just earning his PhD degree. I think he's uh, a month or two short of it from Stanford University. In, uh, while uh, pursuing his degree program, he has assembled an extraordinary data set on the courses that are being offered at America's four-year college. So, so thank you, Jacob, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. Well, Jacob, you put together the largest data set on courses offered at U.S. universities that I've ever seen. So before we dig into your findings, can you tell our listeners about the information you have assembled? Yeah. So I have put together a data set by scraping online course catalogs and course schedules. One of the things that I realized as I started to look for data about what types of courses universities offer is that many universities keep very robust archives of the course descriptions and course schedules for courses that they've offered over 10, 20, up to 25 years. And with the, white, with the right web scraping, you can compile and collect all of this data in a way that allows you to build pretty comprehensive information about what universities are offering to students. So the data set contains data from about 500 universities, which collectively enroll over 40% of U.S. four-year undergrads. For each of the universities, I collect detailed information on course offerings, enrollment, and course descriptions, which give me proxies for supply, demand, and content within the university. So tell me whether or not you think your sample of 400 plus is a representative sample because I, I know you had to take what you could get because not every college is doing this. So what kinds of colleges are you missing? So the colleges that are in my sample are broadly reflective of the, of the colleges that exist in the United States. We have thousands of, of universities and colleges in the United States. Of course, to be in the data set, you have to have an online course catalog or course schedule for me to scrape it. So what I do to make sure that I'm not getting kind of a distorted set of universities is I check that the characteristics of the schools in my sample are broadly reflective of the pricing, the selectivity, the resources that many U.S. universities have. So we should think of this as being broadly reflective. The kinds of schools that are not in the sample are very small, typically religiously affiliated private universities that might enroll 500 or fewer students. Uh, but these, although very numerous, represent kind of a small minority. And I should say that for my research, I'm really focusing on four-year universities, excluding private for-profit universities. So these are uh, the, the larger, you might say, the, the larger four-year 
colleges. You're not looking at two-year colleges. You're not looking at for-profit colleges. Now, as I read your paper, you're trying to find out if colleges and universities are adding new courses as students' demands for something new and different uh, arise. And uh, do I have that right? Is that the main, one of the main, I mean, I know you're doing a lot of things in this paper, but is that one of the main things that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm really trying to figure out when there's a big shift in students' demand for a given field of study, how quickly are universities adding either new courses or just adding new seats in those fields in order for students to take the courses that they want to take? And then as a second order question, those students have to be coming from somewhere are the universities taking resources away from fields with declining enrollment in order to grow fields with growing enrollment? Well, why can't they just sort of admit more kids to the classes? They don't need to add new courses. Can't they just sort of, uh, you know, some courses are more popular than others, so you just have uh, a bigger classroom. Isn't? Are you looking at that, or don't you feel you need to look at that? So the... In the paper, I'm really focusing on upper-level elective courses, and I do this for a couple of reasons. The first is that these are courses that are designed to be small and have direct interaction between students and the instructor in a way that you can't scale as naturally. And the second reason is if we think about the motivation for changing the courses that a university offers as there are underlying changes in the labor market or in society that change the types of skills and knowledge that students need, it's much harder to incorporate that content into existing courses rather than um, there's a need to kind of expand horizontally. So I think, I think both margins are relevant for universities meeting student demand, and I think about both of them, but I kind of focus on growing new courses as the primary way that universities are meeting demand changes. So now you mentioned that you're looking at both selective and non-selective colleges, and I think when everybody thinks of the university, they think of Stanford and Harvard, and maybe they think of Brown, but they don't realize that there's a lot, a lot of colleges out there that pretty much take any high school graduate who's willing to pay the money. Is, is, is there, how many of these colleges are non-selective in your sample? Yeah, so I think, I think it, it is natural when we talk about higher education to think about the selective universities, the Stanford's, and, and my bias, of course, is the University of Michigan's as the best universities. But I, I probably have maybe 30 or 40 of the 100 most uh, selective universities or top-ranked universities in the U.S. News & World Report rankings, but that leaves hundreds of universities that I think of as being the more typical universities that exist in, in the United States. So these are universities that admit maybe 80-plus percent of applicants that draw students from local school districts and then send them into a local labor market. And these are the universities that most students attend, and as a result, those are kind of the most numerous universities in my data set. Well, one of the things that you mentioned in the presentation that I listened to the other day was that you actually uh, say most of the kids go back home uh, to work, that they don't, like, travel across the country for their first job. Is that, is that what you find? Yeah, so this is, um, this is referring to work by John Konzelman and co-authors who use data from LinkedIn to match each university to the labor markets where the, the graduates end up. And so the finding, as I interpret it for my paper, 
is about 80% of graduates from the schools in my sample and 80% of graduates from universities overall end up in the, uh, the same census division as the university is located. So in the same kind of three to five state cluster where the university is located. And so I think of that as the relevant local labor market to which universities who are trying to meet labor demand are going to have the most incentive to be responsive to. So as I understand your, your sort of your theory or model uh, is that uh, when the job market changes locally, uh, students are going to want to take courses that will meet the rising demand so they can have a better chance of getting a job. And then the colleges, uh, do they actually change their courses in response to that? Is that sort of what you're looking at here? Yeah, that's exactly right. Something happens in the labor market. Students see that those opportunities are changing, and some of them might modify the courses that they want to take in response to those changes. The question for my research is how much do universities respond to meet that changing student demand? And as I take it, uh, your major finding is they're sort of slow. Yep. They don't, they don't hop on board very quickly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So students seem to, students over the last decade seem to have been very responsive to changes occurring in the labor market. And universities match this changing student demand at a pretty slow pace. So... Um, how, how slow would you say? Can, can you put a number on that or put this in a, some kind of a, a number that is understandable? I know there's an economics number. I want yes. to know a real number. So the, the headline result from my paper is that a department the size of Stanford's economics department gets a new course when demand for economics courses at Stanford grows by about 200 seats. And the realized change in enrollment is about 115 seats. So what, what that's essentially saying is both that for in many instances, when the demand is growing, there's going to be a portion of students who really want to take these courses in high demand fields who are not able to take them because of slow responsiveness of the university, but also that the growth takes a long period of time and looking at uh, changes over the eight-year period from 2010 to 2018. Um, the, the changes occur relatively slowly and often are not um, sufficiently large to meet students' overall change in demand. Yeah, well, this is good to bring in the time element. So this is, you're talking about before COVID here. Did you say 2010 to 2018 is the critical time period that you're looking at as the when you're looking at responsiveness of the colleges? Yeah, so the focus of my, my, my main result looks at the period from 2010 to 2018. So this is the first full academic year after the Great Recession until the last full academic year before the pandemic. I, in the paper, I kind of explore results that range for the entire period that my data cover. And I look at, I look at responsiveness over periods of at least four years to give the university time to observe changes in student demand and also respond to those changes. But the, the headline result is the same regardless of the period that I look at, that students are moving between different fields in a way that resembles underlying conditions within the labor market, but that the colleges over these different periods of time are pretty slow to, to adjust. So they're, they're sort of uh, 
close somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, they're doing half half as well as they really should be if they wanted to be fully responsive. About a th- about a, th- a quarter actually. A quarter. Yes. So okay, so there's a, so seventy five percent of these kids are out of luck. Seventy five percent of the kids are not able to take. N- Uh, new courses to meet their demand. So a portion of them are going to be able to enroll in courses that are are currently offered that just expand in size. And then about a third or a half of them who are, a third third to a half of the students who want to take these high demand courses are going to be shut out of the courses that they want to take. Well, um, now, so... Why should we pay any attention to these kids? They don't know what's best for them. Colleges have been around for a long time. They understand what the true knowledge, if people are being prepared for life, not just for a job. I mean, why, is, why should we really see this as an issue? I, I think that it's right that universities are long-lived and they've been through cycles of the labor market before they potentially have an understanding of the durable skills that students need not to just get their first job but to sustain them for the rest of their careers and if that is the motivation for universities to respond slowly to students demand then we might think that the university is acting in the student's best interests there's potentially an alternative view that the university would prefer to adjust more responsively to students' demand, but because of features of the university that create rigidities, such as long-term commitments to faculty, because of um, priorities of the university that are not strictly aligned with students' learning and with students' knowledge, that if those types of rigidities are what is making the university slow, then I think there is a sense where the university is acting inefficiently. So I have a little th- cynical theory here that university's job is to uh, survive. That's all a university president really gives a hoot about is I got to keep this thing going. And of course, that's not so ridiculous because there are lots of little colleges that are disappearing right now. So in the first place, you've got to make sure you've got a, a balanced budget next year. You've got to make sure that the tuition is coming in, that you got enough enrollment uh, for next year. So actually, if you think about it, if you're just interested in the survival of the avoiding bankruptcy or avoiding some kind of uh, a political problem in the state legislature, or what isn't it your isn't it your job to respond to that student demand even though it may not be really you know as quite what it should be you can't worry about that this is the reality out there so is that sort of the underlying model uh that that's shaping your way of thinking about this i think that yeah i think that there are different types of universities that might have different objectives and different constraints and it's those objectives and constraints that inform the way that they make decisions and there are a large number of universities that really potentially do just exist because of the tuition support that they're getting from current students i'm not finding a strong relationship in my paper between how dependent the university is on the tuition of current students and their responsiveness to um, the current student demand, at least in this relative short term between of an, of an eight-year period. But I think uh, 
part of this might be that students are kind of locked into the university once they enroll. And what the university is concerned about is developing a reputation over a long period of time that they are not responsive to students' demand. And if that's the case, then I think you're exactly right that that imperils the existence of these, of these smaller universities. So what kinds of places are the most responsive? I think you did some analysis like that. What did you find? So I find that private universities in my sample, and private universities are kind of a, a heterogeneous group. Um, it's, the, it's the elite private universities, but also many liberal arts colleges, as well as many smaller private universities. But these private universities are more responsive to students' demand than public universities, both in growing supply when demand is increasing and in cutting supply when demand is decreasing. And then the other feature of the university that seems to be associated with responsiveness is the tenured share of instructors. But that result kind of bites in two interesting directions. So on one hand, schools that have a high share of tenure instructors somewhat intuitively are less responsive in cutting courses when demand is declining. But these universities are actually more responsive in growing supply when demand is increasing. And I think what's going on here is that it's very costly to create these new courses and the assurance that instructors can recoup those costs by teaching the course over many years is the incentive that is necessary in order to get them to make that upfront investment in creating new courses. So you just brought up the point that one way you can respond is to drop courses that are no longer you know, relevant to the current demand. So uh, how good are universities at sort of getting rid of courses? So. I, I find that universities are less likely to decrease supply when demand is decreasing than they are to grow supply when demand is increasing. And I mean, I think part of the story is that in some instances, especially if you have a very bare bones curriculum, like you, there are certain courses that you have to offer in order to be a university, even if, even if students are not enrolling in those courses. But what potentially is also going on is that you have instructors who have created these courses that they want to continue to teach and that the university allows them to teach, even though a decreasing number of students are enrolling in those courses. Well, they sound to me like the typical uh, home investor who's, who may be okay at picking a stock that's likely to grow, but can't get rid of a stock that is going downhill and hangs on and hoping it'll somehow revive, but it never does. Is that sort of what a college is, is a, <laughs> like I, a homegrown investor? It, it, prob it probably is the case that the university feels some nostalgic attachment to their 18th century British literature courses or their, I don't know, certain, certain foreign language electives where I see uh, dramatic dec declines in enrollment during the period that I'm looking well, at. Well, certainly faculty do. They get attached to what they're doing and they don't want to change very quickly and you probably have to get rid of them and you can't easily get rid of somebody, tenure or not. It's not so easy to let somebody go, is it? That's exactly right. And I think one distinguishing feature of the university is that you have these very specialized employees who you can't very easily move between different fields or different specializations. So it's exactly right that if you're if you have this if you have this stock of instructors, it's hard to shift what these people can teach. 
So, so far we've been just talking about changing courses, but you could change content in a course. I, I know I teach something that's called Introduction to American Government, and, it, you know, it's so different today from the, the first year I taught it. I've just been changing the content constantly over the many, many years, but the title stays exactly the same. So it, probably you know, a lot of faculty can sort of modify things, and I know you've looked at this. Uh, so you're, you've actually looked at the content of the course description for a course. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you've done that? Yeah, so one of the coolest parts of my data is the ability to see the course description for the courses that are offered at these universities. So I get insight into what types of skills and knowledge students have access to through the courses that they can take. And what I do to measure how the content of courses that are offered at the university is changing over time is I relate each of the courses to different themes that are relevant to students' interests. And I do it using a, um, a machine learning or natural language processing method. But what I do is I relate each course to how current events oriented it is, how job relevant it is, how related it is to scholarship and research, its connection to social justice and the connection to technology. And then I look at how the orientation of courses with respect to each of these themes changes over time and why those changes occur. So let me get those, uh, those different themes that you uh, look at. Uh, current events, social justice, job-related, technology, and scholarship, did I get yes. that right? Yes, oh, exactly. I, I win, I win, okay, good. So those are five different, quite you know, distinct topics. So what direction are, is the content and courses being offered? That's a huge issue today. There's a real lot of politics around the content of American higher education is undergoing dramatic change. And, and you know, these uh, people who now run our universities are, you know, headed off in their own direction. So you've got some empirical data on this. So what's the direction that courses are moving? So what I do is I look at trends in these in courses relation to these different themes over the last 20 years. And I'm making comparisons within a field of study and within an institution. So not just about the composition within the university, but within a given department. What I show is that there has been inc an increasing emphasis in college courses on topics related to current events, social justice, and job relevance, that those are the three themes that have grown in their emphasis. The rate of the growth is gradual, but those are the three themes that really stand out as changing over time. So which kinds of colleges are moving in one direction or another in terms of content? The... the Shifts overall seem to be relatively comparable across institutions, but there are, there are systematic differences in the baseline emphasis across different types of institutions. So one of the things that I find is that more selective and wealthier institutions offer elective courses that are on average more oriented towards current events and less selective institutions, on average, offer courses that are more vocational, more job relevant. So in other words, if you're a non-selective college, I say that you're a college that's got a struggle to get students. You'll take pretty much people 
anybody who wa- sticks their hand up in the air, you take them. Uh, th- th- those kinds of colleges, they have to be practical. They've got to be, uh, they got to offer courses that the student is, uh, is looking at in order to get a job. Is that, is that what you find? I, I think that that's, I think that that's one interpretation. And it, similarly, it could be the case that these are colleges that draw a student body that is looking for these very practical skills that they can develop in their courses. I think another interpretation that I explore in the paper is that these differences in the student body composition, the kind of the backgrounds of these students just kind of position them to benefit most from different types of knowledge. That students, for example, with a stronger background in math are maybe more equipped to take courses that are on the cutting edge of economics or computer science where the content is really related to things that we see in current events. And um, fewer of those students are at some of these less selective universities, so the extent of the benefit might be a little bit lower. So you say that you um, don't see much change in terms of technology. How do you measure that? What's your way of because you would think that given everything that's happening out there in the real world, every college would be expanding in that domain. So so the way that I'm measuring technology is it's a little bit narrow, perhaps, but I'm relating these course descriptions to the content of patents that have been produced over the last two decades. What this technology measure is picking up is how much our courses incorporating maybe new methods that are highly relevant in the creation of products in the in the sciences or um, hardware or inventions generally. And it's perhaps the case that what this technology measure is not picking up is innovation in spaces that are not really connected to patents, that a lot of the innovation that we've seen in the last decade has been in information. Uber, for example, is not an entity that uh, is related to patents, but is very relevant to the story of uh, tech over the last couple of years. So maybe you're not really measuring technology as well as you're measuring some of these other things. So people are going to say, okay, so colleges, just as we thought, are moving uh, off the tracks by spending much more time on current events and social justice rather than on the fundamentals uh, would you subscribe to that criticism? I, 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 think, I think I'd hedge on that criticism. I think that there are perhaps some instances where, where course content has moved away from has moved away from nuts and bolts preparing students for skills in the labor market. But I think the orientation of universities has always been towards providing students with like knowledge and a framework for interpreting the world and an emphasis on current events perhaps doesn't equip students with the immediate skills that are necessary to be successful in their jobs when they graduate from college. But we, I I just, I don't think that we know if that type of learning is not durable for the students further into their careers or if it gives them a framework for solving problems uh, that they'll encounter throughout their careers. So I think 
more work needs to be done in actually assessing what is the connection between the skills that students are developing in college and their outcomes once they graduate. That's something that I'm working on in, in work that's subsequent to my paper, but also thinking about the durability of the skills that students are developing and whether students are leaving college with skills that will sustain them throughout their careers. Well, Jacob, this is a fascinating study. I think what I've learned from this is that universities try their best, perhaps, not quite their best, but they sort of try to keep up with things. But yeah, there's an awful lot of uh, institutional rigidity in higher education, and that's something that might come back to bite them at some point down the road. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Jacob Light. He's an economist uh, who's just finishing his degree program at Stanford University. He's been tracking trends in course taking at four-year colleges across the United States. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.